This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is already a veteran of the Veritas show, and we continue what we started back in December. John Lamb Lash is back with us, directly from Spain. We'll continue discussing Gnosticism and the history and alternatives that have been purposely suppressed, and it takes someone like John Lash to help find and make sense of it. As John Lash says, my enlightenment is yours, and I'm proud to have him back. I must alert you, however, we almost had to postpone this interview, as John lives in the Spanish countryside an internet connection is sometimes very unreliable. We were disconnected on several locations, and I've done my best to make the flow of information seamless. Nonetheless, this is another mind-bending interview. John Lamb Lash will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, 
become a member. You'll receive instant access to all our material. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. No sponsorship equals no censorship. Think about the next time you spend $7.95. Do you really receive any value? That is what you pay per month as a Veritas member. And you'll receive over 100 shows, all in CD audio quality. Veritas TV, our very unique Manticore forum, where you can interact with enlightened people around the world to discuss everything that matters. Just go to the subscribe link of our website, veritasshow.com, and take Veritas with you. You can also download our latest show via iTunes. During these times of uncertainty, the uncensored truth is priceless. Don't wait any longer. Subscribe today. You can also purchase our futuristic 8GB metal case USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2 in case you're missing hard drive space or your internet connection is too slow. It includes bonus material, so go to the Veritas store for more information. And don't forget, get your MMS right from us. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Listen to Jim Humble's interview. Go to the past shows of our website for more information. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready for another chapter of a fascinating view of meanings in a sacred history long and wrongly suppressed. For more of this breathtaking historical and anthropological erudition, John Lamb Lash is coming up next. If you want to believe, stop this audio now. If you want to know what has been suppressed for thousands of years, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is George Cavasilis, and you are listening to The Veritas Show.
John Lamb Lash has been called the true successor of Mershe Eliade and the rightful heir of Joseph Campbell. Unlike those two world-class academics, John is a self-educated freelance scholar who combines studies and experimental mysticism to teach directive mythology, that is, the application of myth to life, rather than its mere interpretation. He is a leading exponent of the power of myth to direct individual experience and drive historical events over the long term. An expert on sidereal mythology, naked-eyed astronomy, procession, and the world ages, he also teaches the critique of belief systems. On metahistory.org, he presents a radical revision of Gnosticism, with original commentaries on the Nag Hammadi codices. He also presents the only complete restoration by any scholar of the Sophianic myth of the pagan mysteries, the sacred story of Gaia Sophia, recounting the origin of the earth and the human species from the galactic core. John Lash is the only scholar of comparative mythology so far known to have rewritten a classical myth, giving it a different outcome, Orpheus and Eurydice. His published works are The Seeker's Handbook, Twins and the Double, The Hero, Manhood and Power, Quest for the Zodiac, and Not in His Image. In John Lash's own words, he says, I have only this to tell you about my enlightenment. It's yours. And directly from the southernmost point of continental Europe, Punta de Tarifa, Andalucía, southern Spain, I'm proud to introduce for the second time on Veritas, John Lamb Lash. Hello, John, and welcome back. How are you? I'm fine, Mel. How are you? I am fine, and I'm honored to have you back. Uh, uh, I don't think I have to tell you that I've been flooded with positive messages about the show we did back in December. And most recently, the question was, when are you going to have John Lash back? Well, here you are granting their wish. And as I said last time, and I really mean this, I consider your book a masterpiece for the truth seeker. And instead of compressing a program, I have decided to move in parts so we can discuss all of this in phases. And, and you've been gracious to accept future invitations. So today we take up where we left off. But John, before we start, I just want to say that I received a message from one of our listeners, including a video that shows Christians in the war-torn African country of Ivory Coast, which has a Muslim North and a Christian South. In doing this, I have to be exposed to news, no matter how dire they are. After watching that video, in which men and women are burned alive in the name of religion, it's hard for me to accept that in the 21st century, this type of extremism still exists. What is it going to take to stop this violence based on ignorance, John? Well... You <laughs> were starting off with a bit of a bang here, Mel, um, but why not? It's, uh, it's in our face. You have to say that. Um, I am really grateful for the opportunity to be back again. And sure, I'll tackle this question right off. Uh, if I were asked to summarize the plight of the human species at this critical turning point, I would put it in this way. We are facing many, many things, a lot of confusion, a lot of deceit, a lot of terrorism, genuine and faked, uh, a lot of attacks on, uh, on, on, uh, on our species from one uh, place or another, but basically it all boils down to a test of sanity, you know, it's a test of sanity. And 
we cannot proceed as a species unless we claim our own sanity. So how do we define what's sane and what's not? Well, by, by these very phenomena and events of which you speak, we are able to detect, we are able to observe clearly that this is insane behavior. And it has been going on for many centuries. Uh, I trace in my book, not in his image, the long progression of the insanity that is perpetrated in the cause of religion. And that is one of the first forms of insanity that we need to recognize in order to find our true sanity and have some true future for this species on this planet. And I just could not believe what I saw. I was thinking, we are not in the dark ages. We're not a thousand years ago. This is a 21st century where you would think that people would evolve to the point of realizing that this nonsense and ignorance should not be tolerated. But it seems, and this takes me to the topic at hand, John. You mentioned the phrase in your book, political figure shrouded in a mystical aura. Isn't this a strategy yeah. used by most governments of the world right now? Certainly, certainly. You see, uh, what religion really is, if it's not a religion of the goddess, if it's not a religion that recognizes the divinity of the planet, the divine experiment of the goddess Gaia and our part in it, if it's a male god off-planet religion, it's really not a religion at all. It's really a political program dressed up as a religion. And it has been used that way for countless centuries. So what has to change is this behavior that is driven by this religious ideology that I expose in my book, the ideology of the Abrahamic religions, uh, the Messiah, the judgment of God, and that sort of thing, the divine plan. Uh, and it's the behavior that has to change. But the thing that each one of us needs to realize is that Beliefs drive that behavior. Beliefs drive behavior. This is one of the primary teachings of my site, MidHistory.org. And so if you're going to ask ourselves, how can we change the behavior of people who are still to this day torturing and burning other people in the name of God? Well, we have to look at the beliefs that drive that behavior. And this is the test. This is the test. The big test that we're facing right now, and I think we're in the final phase of that test. Either we pass or we fail. <laughs> and by the way, I, we're folks who are thousands of miles away. John is in Spain. I'm in 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 the desert of the United States, and the connection may not be a hundred percent where it should be. But we we're crossing our fingers to make sure that we're not disconnected. You can hear me okay on your side. Good. I guess whoever wanted to tamper with our conversation realized what I was saying and, and help us a little bit. But anyway. Um, got, got the hell out of here. Right. Yes. Okay, it, great. In, yeah. in reading your book, uh, Not in His Image, there is so much history mm -hmm. that is purposely omitted from most history books. You say, quote, the Jews introduced crucifixion only to find it adopted mm -hmm. by the Romans and used against them. Don't we see this today being used, the hijacking of religion by governments in order to keep a tighter grip? And it doesn't have to be theocracies, even democracies too. Sure. Religion in the form of these three Abrahamic religions uh, is nothing but, this is the bitter pill that uh, I 
um, a propose that people swallow when they read my book. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, Mel, I call it the, the history's hardest lesson. Yes. This is history's hardest lesson that what we've come to call religion, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and where many people have enshrined their sacred values and their sense of human dignity is actually not religion at all in the true sense of the word. It is a political system of social control, brainwashing, and tyranny. And it is fundamentally theocratic at basis, even if the theocratic aspects are sometimes played down because they don't play so well uh, in a secular modern world. But when you really cut to the core, you'll find that the, the pathology at the basis of this... Yeah, well, religion is... Uh, you can say that there is a true spiritual message in religion, for instance, in Christianity. You can claim that uh, Jesus had an original teaching of, of love or something important to say to us, and that it was somehow perverted and hijacked. Uh, you've probably heard that argument. Sure. Uh, people often make that argument. But if you read my book closely, you'll find out that I don't make that argument. I claim that the... Uh, the ideology and even the ethics of Christianity and Judaism from the get-go were corrupt and were nothing but tools for tyranny and for political aims. Uh, that's a very harsh judgment, and it's a very hard pill to swallow. But look at what's happening today. It's no different today when you see how religion is used so flagrantly today to obviously uh, commit atrocities of all manners, then you have to take a few steps back and say, well, maybe it always was that way. And my contention is that, that it always was. And this is where we have to break the spell of evil. At its core, we have to defy and cast aside those religious belief systems which are being used to decimate uh, the world and to desecrate the earth. And, and one thought from the section of your book called Converting the Barbarians. The more the natives resisted, the more intense the enforcement. Unquote. Why is it that Christianity professes to be a religion, and even the other ones, of peace? But when it comes to indoctrination, hundreds of years ago, violent coercion would be used. And today we see it more as social shunning. How has the indoctrination or conversion process changed from then to now? Well, basically, it hasn't changed now, if you look at the facts of it, you know, that uh, a large area subject to evangelization by Christianity today is Africa. And if you go and look at the facts of how this is done, you will see that African tribes are intimidated uh, by threats of, of damnation. They are, and, and they are tortured. They are, they are pressured by all kinds of means. Uh, to adopt Christianity. Christianity has never been a religion that was adopted voluntarily by people. It has always had to be forced on people. That has not changed. And to understand that again, go back to the fundamental point I mentioned earlier. Belief drives behavior. So if you want to ask yourself this question, well, how can Christians behave in this way toward other people? How can they, they torture people? How can they impose their belief system rather than invite people into it and, 
and accept coexistence. Christianity has never accepted coexistence. How can this be? Well, the answer is, look at the beliefs they hold. The beliefs drive that kind of behavior. The beliefs are insane. The fundamental beliefs of Christian ideology of salvation, which is derived from Judaism, are insane. This is what I argue in my book, as you know. Of course, and it seems that they want to keep the monopoly and any and eradicate any competition. And of course, Gnosticism being an alternative to religion is frowned upon by anybody who mentions it to anybody who's, in my case, as a Catholic. And this is not an attack. I'm just telling you what I went through throughout life, at school, 10 years as an altar boy, whenever I used the word pagan, <laughs> I was being looked upon as, as a heresy. But John, since mm. you, you have studied the Middle East, the so-called cradle mm. of civilization, mm -hmm. and we're going to be mm -hmm. mixing some of current world events with all the, the, the interview. Can you share with us your opinion of what's transpiring there right now? Is the transition part of the controller's script, or is the transformation real? Well, it's very hard to call that one, Mel. I, I, I think I'm a, a, me along with a, a lot of other people, many of whom are much better informed on politics and, and local issues in the Middle East, uh, are scratching their heads about it. My best guess would be that those so-called revolutions in Libya, Egypt, and so forth mm -hmm. have a real component in them. There is something real and genuine in them. Why? To the extent that very simply that all human beings want to be free. We just want to be free to coexist with each other and get along with our lives and live and prosper together. We can prosper together. We can't prosper as a society or a species if we're divided and fighting each other all the time, which is, a, a as you know, a tactic of control by the, the New World Order people. So to the extent that it's a natural desire of the human heart to want to coexist with other people and get along and thrive uh, with a certain healthy sense of competition, perhaps, but not, not a murderous type of competition, then they're genuine. But in the large picture, I'm sorry to say that it looks to me like they are, they are manipulations, they are orchestrations. Um, we see the usual agent provocateur, They're part of a big chess game being played by the uh, military and political uh, psychopaths who think that they're going to uh, take control of this planet. So unfortunately, I have to say that I'm not terribly inspired uh, by the, uh, the idealistic view of these events. You see, we're, we're somewhat jaded. Uh, I am too, because I think perhaps they're removing one dictator with a younger one that could be subverted even faster all these people may have had in the time that they've been in power Hosni Mubarak as an example uh, he started mm. getting a little bit recalcitrant and not bowing to the powers that be if you will and it was time for them to go I mean look at the ages and then we have uh, uh, Assad in uh, Syria and we're saying here in the West that no we should keep him there because he's a, re a reformer <laughs> a reformer right. give me a right. break sure. I mean what's the difference yeah. between him and a king Right? That's right. That's right. Well, you know, you can say it's jaded, and in a way, perhaps it is. But I think in a more positive sense, it might be that our eyes are opening and the, and the, and the deceit. We're seeing through the deceit. 
and we're seeing a pattern of deceit. And the pattern of deceit is fairly obvious. The uh, shadow government, the military corporate uh, controllers who are nothing but a mafia of criminals and murderers in positions of power, set up these dictators and use them until they have no use for them anymore. And then they bring them down and set up another one. Right. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to see these patterns. Now, you can call me jaded, but on the other hand, uh, maybe, I, maybe I deserve that term and you deserve that term. We would really be jaded if we totally lost and abandoned our faith in humanity. That we're not going to do. But let's not be naive when, uh, when the events of the world stage are being uh, maliciously orchestrated in front of us, uh, we have to stand up and, and call it for what it is. Absolutely. And there's, yeah. a, ter there's a term you use in, in the book. It, 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 do you pronounce it Zadikite? Yeah, Zadikite. Zadikite, okay. Mm -hmm. In the section mm -hmm. of your book called Double Agent, you mentioned some information that originates from the Dead Sea Scrolls regarding how right. a new religion was hijacked, uh, Christianity. Right. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. The word Zadikite is an extremely important word for understanding the history of, uh, of the earth and the great turnabout that happened around 2,000 years ago that brought us to this uh, dangerous uh, situation of annihilation that we're now facing. If you understand the word Zadokite, you understand the key to the religious ideology of the psychopaths and the controllers. You understand their ultimate trick. It's the ace up their sleeve. Uh, Zadokite is a term that's not of my invention. You'll find it in the uh, work of Robert Eisenman, who was one of the great rebels of the Dead Sea Scholar movement. He wrote uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and other books. And it refers to a splinter sect of ultra-radical Jews. It doesn't refer to the Jewish population of the ancient world as a whole. It doesn't re re uh, refer to mainstream Judaism, but rather to a sect more that might be compared, for instance, to the, uh, the Branch Dravidian sect of David Koresh. You just read my mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking when you say sect. It's a very close parallel. The Branch Davidian sect of, of David Koresh was a, was a Christian sect that got wiped out by the, uh, the American government in a, or a horrifying way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was Christian and fundamentalist. In some ways, it was even Jew Judaic. But certainly, it did not represent uh, mainstream Christianity, nor did the ideology and beliefs of Koresh and his cult uh, represent uh, what most Christians believe. Well, likewise, in the ancient uh, Middle East, about 2000, 2000, between 2000 and 2600 years ago, this splinter sect of the Zadokim, which means the perfected or righteous ones, appeared in the Jewish community of that time. And it was a very tiny splinter group, but it was ultra-genocidal and ecocidal. It was really a, a cult of, of, of murderous and dangerous psychopathic people uh, who actually frightened the rest of the Jewish community as well. Uh, Jewish people as a whole in the, in the uh, time of the Roman Empire, uh, the time of so-called Jesus Christ, uh, were terrified by this ultra-radical sect of the Zedekim or Zedekites, who were also called the Zealots. That would probably be the name that most people would recognize them mm. by. And you even find the 
to term in the uh, in the Bible in the New Testament. For instance, Simon Zelotes, who was one of the followers of Jesus according to the New Testament uh, fable, would would have been Simon the Zealot, meaning that he was a member of this Zadokite cult. And the fundamentalist be- uh, the fundamental belief of the Zadokite cult, which is the also I would point out, please note the germ of Zionist ideology today, the germ of it, is that there is a race of people chosen by God who are more perfect and deserving than anyone else. And in the end of time, the world will be theirs. And all of those who do not live up to the standards of perfection, Zadik means perfection or righteousness, will be damned and condemned by God and his Messiah. This is the core of the insane pathology of Judeo-Christian religion. And what happened was that in the centuries leading up to the time of St. Paul, the Roman Empire occupied the Middle East and they occupied Palestine. And the stability of the Roman Empire in that area was threatened by this group of radicals who could not have been more than four to 6,000 people. Some of them lived in the outpost in the Dead Sea Others lived in various cells in Damascus and other places in Syria. And the Roman Empire, the stability of the empire in in the Middle East was so threatened by this group of radicals that it was a grave concern to the Roman authorities. Another uh, historical parallel, Mel, that we cannot afford to overlook. Today, what do we see in this very same area of the world? We see... The Palestinian intifada, that is, the, the, the rising up of the Palestinian people against the occupation uh, by Israel. And this is nothing but a, a, a twisted replay of the rising up of the Zadokim cult uh, against the Roman occupation. It's the same script, only played another way around, you know. And so the madness persists today. And this sect was so dangerous, not only to the Romans, but also to the Jewish, uh, the peace and coexistence of the Jewish community, that the, uh, the Roman authorities eventually had to expel all Jews from the Holy Land. This is the reason, very few people know this, this is the actual historical reason for the exile of the Jews from uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus. He threw out all the Jews because he couldn't figure out who the Zadokim were, because they were hiding and hid themselves among the ordinary people. And there was such a threat that they threw them all out. And needless to say, the world has not recovered from that event to this day. Think about St. Paul, and you really need to read the chapters 4, 5, and 6 of my book to get this astounding story, is that St. Paul was actually Saul, and he was a mercenary in the the, uh, service of the Romans. He was highly protected by the Romans. They sent troops to protect him. You can read this in the, in the New Testament. And he was a mercenary that the Romans sent out to find these radical Zadokites and to uh, find their cells, to dig them out and bring them back to the authorities so they could be executed. This is what his mission actually was when he went to Damascus. But a very odd thing happened, which was that Saul was abducted into the Zadokite cult. And he actually became a member of the radical cult that he was sent to destroy. 
This is an amazing story, and it's not just my invention, by the way. Strongly supported by the work of Robert Eisenberg, who is a, a tremendous Dead Sea Scrolls scholar, and also John Allegro. So, to make a long story short, Paul did something absolutely horrific. He he was inducted into the cult that he was sent to uh, to break. Can can you understand that? Can yes. you can you imagine like a, a detective today, an undercover detective, was sent into some cult in California, some weird uh, you know millennial cult of people who think the world is going to come to an end, and instead of breaking open that cult and exposing them, he himself becomes the most passionate member of the cult. And you see that. You, you see that all the time. You yeah. see you see that with cops you who do. infiltrate drug rings. Yes. That's absolutely true. It's a very common psychological phenomenon. Not so hard for us to believe with the privileged perspective we have today to understand these things. And then what happened was even more outrageous. I show that he learned the deepest secrets of this Zedekine cult, especially he learned about Melchizedek, who was the, the central figure, the spiritual uh, leader of the cult, as it were, kind of a, 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 a very creepy, clone-like, uh, non-human, superhuman entity, Melchizedek. He was the leading figure of the Zedekine cult. Saul learned about all the secrets of the cult, including the identity of Melchizedek, and then he turned around and he defected again from the cult that he had joined. And he took their ideology and he went out and turned it into what we now call Christianity. So the, the germ of Christian doctrine, Christian ideology of salvation, comes not from Judaism. This is a mistake doesn't come from mainstream Judaism at all. Mainstream Judaism remains its, retains its separate identity, even to this day. Anybody knows that, right? Uh, uh, Orthodox Jews and, and devout Jews have their own identity and ideology. They don't consider themselves to be the founders of Christianity, do they? Right. They weren't. They weren't. Saul produced Christianity out of the genocidal and... Uh, apocalyptic belief system of this Zadokim cult. And he and that's what I call the transference. Until the time of Saul, the Zadokim cult was a splinter group. It was very, very dangerous and volatile, and they were very violent. They murdered other Jews. They, they, they knifed them. They, they cut their throats. Uh, they, they crucified other Jews who they considered to be collaborating with the Romans. But they were not... Uh, a pandemic religious movement. They were a very isolated, small sect within mainstream Judaism. But through Paul, Saul, who became Paul, that virus exploded. It's like a vector. It's what they call in terms of viral or epidemiology, they call it a vector. In order to get a, a, a virus like the swine flu or AIDS into a population group, you need a vector. Understand that term. And the vector is the infected person who takes it into the larger group. So, Paul was the infected person who carried this Zadokite ideology into the world at large, and we today are still living out the ramifications of that, of that horrific uh, expansion, that pandemic virus. So when we say religious zealot, 
It's on mm-hmm. the scene. Religious Zadokite. Is that a good synonym? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. You know, I grew up in a small town in Maine, Friendship, Maine, that was dominated by a fundamentalist Christian cult. And almost everyone in the town belonged to the local church. And I remember very clearly the fiery sermons of the, of, of the men of that town talking about zeal and, and the zeal of St. Paul. Zeal, by which they meant that Paul was inspired and infilled by the love of Jesus and by the belief, his belief in the, in the truth of the Redeemer and all this. And that was his zeal. They didn't have no idea what they were talking about, that they were talking about a toxic poison, that zeal and zealot come from this Zadokite uh, origin. Absolutely. That, that, is the, that is the origin of those terms. So can we say... For example, we use the word Zionist, right? And some people say, oh, you're being anti-Semite. That absol- that's absolutely not true. There are Christian Zionists. There are Muslim Zionists. And right now, can we say that the term Zadokite has turned into Zionism? And then we looked at all the Jews, and we cannot put them all together because not alone. Not all of them are Zionists. And, you know, and folks, I, I don't have to name names. You get the idea. You know, we, we hear of 9-11. You hear the preparations for war. You know the, the usual suspects. Those are the Zionists or the Zadokites of today, aren't they? True. Well, and this is such an important thing to realize because if we cannot identify the virus and disidentify those people who are, who are not accessory to this virus, We don't have a chance in hell of sorting this situation out, you know. Uh, the same applies today even more than it applied uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, the, the, the mainstream Jews, the uh, people of the Hebraic, uh, Hebrew extraction, Semites, if you want to call them. Right, there right. were other Semites beside Hebrews. I mean, come on, let's get real here. Some Arabs are Semites. Uh, huh? Some Arabs are Semites too. Uh, totally, you know, Semitism doesn't just mean Jewish. It's a very much broader sense. But the the ancient Hebrews were not to blame for this Zadokite ideology. In fact, they hated it themselves, and they were the victims of it as much as anyone else. Just as today, many many decent and uh, moral. Uh, compassionate, intelligent Jewish people who just want to go along with their own faith and coexist with others and not evangelize, right. you know, are stigmatized and made accessories to this Zionist program, which is extremely evil. This Zionist program is evil. It, there's nothing in it that is not evil. It is conceived as, an, as a deceit against humanity. And the basis of that deceit, if you want to understand the basis of it and how we got into this mess, uh, read the first six chapters of my book where I, where I lay that out. You know, there's uh, my parents left Spain to Cuba, and I visited a few years ago, and I saw a community of 120, back then in 95, of Jews. And uh, they were asked, you know, why, why haven't you left? And they said, We're very happy here. We're very happy the way we are. We don't need any Zionists to take us and represent us. We're very happy with who we are. And I bet you, if you ask most Jewish people around the world, they'll tell you the same thing. Yes, they will. Uh, you know, it's a terrible thing, a terrible event, not just for the ancient Jews, but for the whole human species, that those people were driven out of Palestine under these draconian measures taken by the Roman emperors. As I said, the Roman emperors could not sort out who were the Zadokites and who weren't. 
because they were an extremely uh, secretive group. And so in order to eliminate the, the Zadokites, uh, they had to throw all the Jews out. They had to, in effect, exile all the Jews. Uh, it's a terrible suffering for the Jewish people. But uh, given that that is the case, uh, it must also be said that, you know, to their great merit and to their praise, Jewish people have, you know, circulated around the world. And they've contributed beautifully and wonderfully to human society wherever they've gone, while at the same time retaining their identity and, and coexisting. You know, Zedekites could never do that. Zedekites and Zionists could never do that. So we really need to sort out the Zedekite-Zionist problem and see not only the origin of it, but see how it's used today as the most sinister tool for deceit and destruction on our planet. This ideology is very, very sinister. And the people who are using it know exactly what they're doing. They're not naive. You know, some of them may believe in it. Uh, I don't think that most of them do. I think that they use it in an extremely disingenuous way because it is so divisive and, and it works so well as a tool of, of deceit and division and domination. Uh, we've really got to face this. This is the monster in our midst. This is the source of the human nightmare. And during our last show, I mentioned to you how when the Moors uh, took over Spain, I visited uh, southern Spain, and I, I was very impressed by seeing churches, synagogues, and and uh, and mosques right next to each other, and where people coexisted peacefully back then when the Moors were around, and then when the 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 kingdom of Spain took over, then they started changing things, and, and it became apparent that they wanted Christianity to be the leading religion in the area. What's your take on that? I mean, back then, it seems that peace was around, and then all of a sudden, it changed again. Well, Mel, I'll give you my take on that, and I have to warn you that this is uh, coming from an extremely ruthless viewpoint, because I am a reborn Gnostic, and I know what happened to the precious, precious birthright of our species that was preserved in Gnosticism and in the mystery schools. And I make no compromises in my view on this matter. It's all fine and wonderful to have this interfaith concept and to think of everybody in these religions existing, coexisting together, the Jew, Jewish uh, synagogues and the, and the, uh, the Moorish uh, places of worship and the Christian churches and so forth. And fine, there may well have been some places in the world such as here in Spain, in Granada, Granada right. or, some, or, or some moments in history when that interfaith kind of coexistence and tolerance existed. But I would like to point out something to you, that even in the best interfaith scenario that you can imagine, if you go today, look on the Internet at all the interfaith organizations and go to their meetings and talk to their leaders, you will not find Gnosticism included in the interfaith movements. Mm, right. So I ask you to reflect on that, my friends. You know, because as far as I know, Gnosticism, which is the spiritual and ethical and visionary teaching of the mystery schools, contains the most complete story of our species. It contains the most complete explanation of who we are, where the human species really originated, who is the goddess Gaia 
what they called Sophia, how the earth came into being, why we went insane, what are the forces that threaten human sanity, what threatens the divine experiment, and I could go on for days. That was the teaching that the Gnostics had, and if you're not going to include that teaching in the interfaith system, the umbrella, if you're not going to put them under the umbrella of the interfaith, well, I'm sorry. I don't, I'm not too impressed by this interfaith concept. And finally, I would add, too, that, um, you know, we can't have, this is my conclusion, which I put at the end of my book, we cannot have a paternal religion of divine paternalism on the same planet as a religion of the goddess. We cannot have them on the same planet. It's a war. It's not a war I chose, but it's a war that I stand in, and I stand on the front line. And I can tell you, if the human species is going to survive in harmony with nature and each other, they will do it through the return to the goddess Sophia, or not at all. And we cannot survive in these belief systems of divine paternalism, of the off planet Father God, the Messiah, the judgment of the world, the divine plan, the chosen people. We cannot survive with this ideology. Look at the record of history. Well, you see... We are, many people who are listening to us now are new to Gnosticism. I was new mm -hmm. until I, mm -hmm. I, 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 I was referred to your work by my friend Jim Nichols. Mm. Growing up as a, as a Catholic, who, by, by the way, I'm no longer religious, but growing up, there was not the alternative to religion, which is Gnosticism. And even if I wanted right. to switch religions, the alternative was never there for me to be exposed to. I had to go out right. there and find the truth myself to bump into John Lamblash and do this and be awakened to this reality that was not around for me to, to, to absorb. Does that make sense? It does indeed. It does indeed. And, and uh, thank you so much for uh, touching on a, uh, a real key point of my book, uh, a key point in the message of my book. And this is a real deal breaker. And as you know, there's some deal breakers in my book. Many. There's some really big deal breakers. Yeah, there are. And this is a deal breaker. So the, to those of you out there, the first time you're perhaps hearing me or you're familiar with this term Gnosticism in my sense of the word, I want to tell you, as Mel just suggested, that Gnosticism is not an alternative religion. It's an alternative to religion. That's what it is. Exactly. Gnosticism is based on the central figure of Sophia, which means wisdom. Sophia is the root of the word philosophia, philosophy, which means the love of wisdom. So Gnosticism is a path of philosophy, of the love of wisdom. And the gnosis or the knowing of those ancient seers of the mysteries was not just another belief system that you can stack it along Judaism and the Talmud or stack it alongside the New Testament, or stack it alongside Islam, or even stack it alongside the Bhagavad Gita and Buddhism, and, and, and uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. You can't stack it alongside any of those things, because it stands as a unique path and practice of direct access to the knowledge of our divinity, of the divinity of our species and the divinity of the earth. And that is what I mean by goddess religion the Sophianic vision. I'm a little reluctant even to call it goddess religion because I don't want to uh, 
suggest a false you know, comparison. This is a very unique way that uh, I have recovered through the study of the Gnostic materials. No other Gnostic scholar has been able to recover their genuine pagan and pre-Christian message. I've done this. And this is a unique way for humanity to find itself, to know itself, and to know why we are really here, and what is this experiment that we are involved in? Who originated this experiment, and why? Why on earth it is going so badly wrong? By the way, this is not in your book, but you mentioned a very controversial event in the history of the United States, the massacre at the Branch Davidian complex, a compound, and, and right. its leader, David Koresh. It's one of those things that I can still not understand why so much brutal force and, and weapons of mass destruction, gas. What's your reaction to, to what happened there, by the way? Well, it's, uh, again, a uh, these things are, are very complex, Mel, and difficult to understand, and we can get lost and confused in trying to sort them out. One thing that I find extremely helpful is the concept of coexistence. This is a concept that has helped me understand and sort out, first of all, the whole uh, history of Christianity and its relation to Gnosticism and the mysteries. Because one of the first things that you see when you go back and look at the rise of Christianity is you see that it began to be defined ideologically first by St. Paul, Saul, around uh, AD, uh, AD, and then it took a couple of hundred years before the, the, the ideological structure and the political uh, uh, ramifications were developed. But as soon as it had a profile, as soon as it had a profile and a program, it refused to coexist with anything else. Refused. Well, that itself is in basic contradiction to its message. If Christianity is a message of love, then why didn't it coexist with everything else? That, ex that already was there, namely paganism and Gnosticism, which had been there for thousands of years already. When, uh, when uh, the uh, settlers brought uh, the, uh, came from Europe and the, uh, the colonialists came to the United States, you know, they were Christians. Uh, the conquistadores of Spain were Christians, whether, you know, believe it or not, they acted like they were. And uh, why didn't they coexist peacefully with the Native Americans and the Aztecs and the Maya? You know, so what we come down to by asking that kind of question is a fundamental insight. And again, this is a very hard insight to accept that you can tell if you are dealing with a political, a malicious and destructive political ideology. You can tell if you're dealing with a fascist ideology disguised as religion, if it accepts no coexistence. Competition. Uh, this, no competition, no coexistence. This certainly applies to Islam, which is the worst form of this virus. I mean, Islam is the form of the virus that kills the host. You know? Islam is really evil, and Islam, by definition, allows no coexistence. What does Islam mean? Submission. It means that everybody submits to that ideology. There is no coexistence. So to get back to the David Koresh thing, complicated situation there are all kinds of agendas going on but you know fundamentally the uh powers that be who are using the uh theocratic zadokite ideology will not allow anything that resembles it to coexist with them not even anything that resembles it 
And the terrifying thing about the David Koresh cult was that in a sense it was like exposing the raw nerve. It was exposing what the real uh, uh, fanatical xenophobic nature of, of uh, Christianity actually is. And they, wouldn't, they couldn't allow that to be exposed, you see. That's my hit. Maybe it sounds like a weird angle, but that's my hit. But you see, in a country that you have constitutional rights that give you the freedom of expression, mm. freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, why, yeah. why was such brute force used against men, women, and even children? That is mm -hmm. one part that I could never understand. I mean, we talk about diplomacy. We talk about not mm -hmm. invading Libya because we need to use diplomacy. What happened that day? You know what I mean? Anyway, we can be talking about this subject forever. Yeah. Yes, it was it horrific. Was. Yeah. But it since, was horrific. since you mentioned the, the Native American, let's talk about the, the sin doctrine, as you call it. In this sure. case, Christians are sinners from the moment that they are born. I was born That's allegedly right. with the original sin. You say the moral resilience of the native people in Europe and America could have resisted the sin doctrine. What happened then? Gunpowder mm -hmm. and swords were more powerful? Mm. They could have resisted the sin doctrine, and they did resist it, uh, by, their, by their own innate uh, morality, mm. by the morality of their way of life. You know, the word pagan, which is terribly slandered today, and don't believe any fundamentalist Christian who uses the word pagan because yeah. they don't, they're ignorant, totally ignorant, and they have no idea what the word pagan means. The word pagan is just the European equivalent of the word indigenous people right. or Native Americans. So we, everyone knows what the Native Americans were. Well, the pagans of Europe were the Native Americans of Europe just like the Native Americans of our uh, continent are the pagans. They were pagans. That means they were country dwellers, people who were bonded to the earth, and not just in a superficial sense of being uh, tree huggers who grew their own vegetables or hunter-gatherers, in a much deeper sense, bonded to the divinity of the earth, and they respected and revered the life of the earth and found their frame of life within the greater frame of uh, of Wakam Tanka and the many beautiful names that they called the great spirit of the earth. Uh, and these people had a morality. This is another thing. You hear the word paganism and suddenly it means, oh, immorality, uh, sacrificing children, sexual orgy, orgies. A pagan is someone who uh, would mistreat other people who has no conscience. You know, this is, these are the stupid implications that uh, people bring to this term. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I can tell you that that is completely wrong. And I remember a few years ago, I used to visit Indian reservations for a business I used to own a few years ago. And it was interesting mm -hmm. to see Christianity all over the reservation. For mm -hmm. the Christians who may be listening, they, they may say, so what? But knowing how the indigenous people had their own sets of beliefs sequestered, it, it was a right. little bit shocking. And even I'm from the Caribbean. And I remember traveling throughout the islands and seeing you know the the voodoo ladies with with the saints and all the 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 the, the same um, idols if you will but they had changed their names because That's right. back then they couldn't practice unless they had the same idols otherwise they would be persecuted what's your take that's on right. all of this well that's one way that the pagan people attempted to preserve their uh pre-christian ways of life and disguise them as they were. Voodoo is a perfect example. Right. Voodoo, by the way, is a tremendously important subject on this planet. And I recommend to everyone to read uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow by Wade Davis. Oh, I saw the movie. Have, 
Yeah. Did you really? <laughs> the movie, if The Serpent wanna, and the Rainbow. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. If you want to have an eye-opening experience and know what voodoo really was and get away from this B Hollywood B-movie idea of what voodoo is, read this book. because It's really an eye-opener. But voodoo religion, voodoo and religion of Africa, pagan, pagan religions of, uh, of, of Europe and the Native American religions, all have a profound morality. It's all well and good that Christians can smugly sit back and say, oh, well, look, you know, they adopted Christianity on the reservations, and isn't that great? Yeah. Well, it may or may not be, my friends, but what did they have before they adopted that? Right. Hmm? What do you know about that? What do you know about what they had to have ripped out of their souls before they adopted this Christian ideology? And if you go back to that, you will find two things. The mainstay of pagan or indigenous Morality consists of two things. One, a confidence in the essential goodness of human beings, that we are here to mutually aid each other. Doesn't mean that we can't have differences. Doesn't mean that we can't have fights. But the bottom line is that we are basically here to live peacefully together. That is our nature. That is part of our divine birthright. And the second thing you find uh, endemic to these pagan indigenous uh, cultures is honor. You see, honor is the pagan attribute. Honor is the great, great attribute of paganism. Paganism is an honor system. If you're born a pagan, you do not hurt other people because it is against your honor to do so. It's dishonorable. You don't not hurt other people because you're going to be punished for doing so or because there is some set of laws written on stone by the fiery finger of an off-planet off father god, and that you're under threat if you violate his set of rules. No, that's not why you behave well. You behave well because you do it on your honor, and honor makes a human being. A human being who does not preserve his or her own honor becomes less than a human being. And so the honor system is the basis of pagan morality, and that's what was taken away from the American Indians. The stories are heartbreaking, Mel. I'm sure you know them. Read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Read about white man speak with forked tongue. You know that line, you know? Yes, yes. How many times did these colonialists, these military men who were devout Christians, or pretended to be, which is almost the same thing, who came in, and lied and made and made uh, treaties with these Indians and betrayed the treaties. And why did the Indians give in? And why did the pagans cave in? Because when you are an honorable person, it's very hard to deal with somebody who is totally deceitful and dishonorable. Right. You call it uh, counter mimicry. Counter mimicry. Right. That's right. Yeah. And we all know the the phrase "divide and conquer," but during the right. submission and subversion of the native peoples, you say that what really happened was divide and convert. But isn't conquer right. and convert in this case exactly the same? Mel, I'm of the opinion after writing that book uh, that came out in November 2006, and even in these five years of retrospect, conquest and conversion are almost identical terms. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know. Why on earth are Christian missionaries going into Africa and South America and, and converting these people in the most hideous manner possible under threat of death? I mean, they, they come in with uh, a text that they read in Latin, 
before a tribe of Africans, a tribe of a, a village of two or three hundred Africans with uh, soldiers standing there with Uzis and their fingers on the triggers. This is conversion. What is it? It's nothing but conquest. And behind those people, there are governmental, military and political interests. And that's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. We have to realize, and it's very hard. I tell you, I don't. I know my book is a huge challenge to many people. But it's very hard to realize how absolutely corrupt this Judeo-Christian morality is, and what a tool of evil it has become, or was from the beginning, actually. And it seems that Africa, it seems to be the most fertile ground right now. I have a friend, mm -hmm. uh, Mauricio Bayata, a, a researcher, who told me that he right. was traveling throughout Africa, and he he's from Rome, so of course, you know, talk about having a TV there all day long with the Pope talking about all the subjects that are relevant to the Vatican. But in Africa, every couple of miles, he would see a church with a huge parabolic antenna. And all they did 24-7 was just disseminate information to convert the locals and the people. That's right. There. But That's right. Do you think the discovery of the, and just moving forward a little bit, do you think the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a positive event for Christianity or not? Did it bring information to light that they would prefer <laughs> not to be public? Totally, my friend. Totally. You know, it's a huge subject, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I, I do cover it. And I'm, I'm very proud of the way I was able to cover it in my book because I was able to do it, I believe, succinctly and, and, and cogently without, you know, going into five or six hundred pages. Right. But uh, one thing that I point out is that when these Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in, in 1947, written on uh, sheepskins and, and uh, uh, other parchments uh, in Aramaic and ancient Hebrew, the uh, Vatican scholars were right there on the ground at the discovery. And they, excuse me, were, you know, shitting in there, whatever it is they wear. They really were terrified because they saw that this was going to blow the lid right off their program. And so it's a very famous story, and anyone can read it if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, a book called The Dead Sea Scrolls Scandal by uh, Michael Bajent hmm. and, uh, and Lie, Michael Bajent. Uh, it, it, it tells that there was a 50-year program by the Vatican to keep the information in these Dead Sea Scrolls from being translated and brought out to the public at large because they knew that when the, de the Dead Sea Scrolls is the death knell to Christianity. Absolutely. Once you see the root of what Christianity is, you can no longer make excuses for it, you know? can no longer say, oh, but Jesus really had a good message and, you know, it was really something good in the beginning. You can't say that because you see what the beginning of it actually was. And the beginning of it was genocide, geocide, murder in the name of the Father God. We are the select people who will rule the earth and the rest of you will die. Exactly what the Zionist New World Order program is today. And man, there was an enormous, and it blew open around 1991 uh, after they kept the lid on it for about 50 years. <laughs> it's a hell of a story. And it makes you wonder why Bechtel owns most of the Dead Sea Scrolls. What is it that they need to protect so much to keep it sequestered? I have to tell you, man, with that piece of information, every time I hear it, it puts a chill up my spine. It really does. you know. And also, as I point out in my book, the... CIA were there on the ground. They hit the ground running the moment these Dead Sea Scrolls, and they photographed them, and, and they photographed some uh, scrolls and some fragments which have never, ever, ever else been found. 
So as explosive as the Dead Sea Scrolls are, it's quite likely that there are other uh, uh, parchments or pages in the scrolls which are even more damaging to the Christian church. Uh, and they were eliminated and they were, uh, you know, uh, repressed by the powers that be. Why? Because the powers that be, Bechtel, the military industrial complex, the warmongers, the ones who make money on war, use this Judeo Christian ideology as a tool of social control. Yeah. Yeah. You okay. know, you cannot put it more succinctly that, than that. And, John, we have to take our one and only intermission. Before okay. we take the break, uh, how do we get in touch with your work, all these great books? Well, uh, the main thing is metahistory.org has about 24 books on it itself. So you can go and delve into that. I suggest that you click on the site guide and just take a tour through the site to see what's in there. And then my book, latest book, Not In His Image, is really the one that contains uh, the essence of what we're talking about this evening. And that's the place to go the logical place to go from here please don't go anywhere we have so much more to cover we have questions from the audience around the world and more discussions to take place here with John Lamb Lash this is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas don't go anywhere thank you very much for listening we're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section if you're not a member just head on over to our website veritasshow.com and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is Jay Widener, and you're listening to Veritas. <laughs> 